everybody, whether you're the president of a company or the paperboy, everybody has the exact same amount of time. You and I both have 24 hours a day. No more, no less. The question is, what do you do with your time? Real quick, my friends, go to zbooks.co and go get my new book. It's called The Power to Publish. It's at the top of the website. Just click on the link and it'll take you there. Okay, back to that podcast. Hey! Oh! There! Excellent! Yeah, I can see you. And so we've discovered something very important here. The shared live video feature only works on your phone not on a desktop for reasons I don't entirely understand because from my point of view as a non-technical person, a laptop computer should be able to do everything that a smartphone does and more, but apparently that's not how Facebook designers think. Anyway, I'm here. It's good to be here. How are you, Eric? I'm doing great, Gregory. It's great to see you. There is a lag in the speech, so you, you, your mouth moves and then two seconds later I hear you, so it's kind of funny. All right, that's weird. Yeah. Can you uh, sure turn around, show us the weather in the Philippines? I can uh, go outside briefly. Yeah, sure. I'm just renting a little house here, which is my little writer's sanctuary until the end of the month. Uh, All right. It's uh, somewhat overcast today. It's usually a bit sunnier. Yesterday it was raining quite a bit too, but pretty nice weather. Weather. I'm feeling better already. Cool enough that I can wear a shirt. Most of the time I'm shirtless, but right now I can be clothed for you. Cool. Don't even need the fan or the air conditioner. Awesome. Well, you're not missing anything here in Germany. It's nice and cold, winter-like. So, what did we want to talk about? This is my creative assistant. Ah, his what's her name? Lumpy. He'll be joining us today. Lumpy, because he has a hernia, a lump in his stomach. <laughs> I thought she was one of the seven dwarves or something. Sure. Anyway, uh, what would we like to talk about today? Well, presumably something related to publishing. Uh, specifically, I wrote a pretty good book about writing and publishing what I call nonfiction books that matter. But we could also talk about other things, too. Actually, I have that book right here in front of me. Well, you wrote two good books. Yeah, the let's talk about that one. How do you become an influential well, author for all the newbies out there? Well, it really depends what your motivation for writing a book is, because, uh, you know, self-publishing is pretty darn popular now. Lots of people doing it, and there are a lot of guides on how to do it, most of which, in my opinion, are quite redundant. Uh, but most of them really seem to come from the perspective of, you should write a book because it'll make you the instant authority in your niche, or, uh, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll be an author, and that's really cool that you'll have that social identity as an author because you wrote and published a book, and it became an Amazon bestseller for like an hour in some obscure subcategory. And that's fine if that's the reason why you want to write a book. I won't tell you not to do that, right? And maybe you can write a really good book that covers things that no one's ever covered before. But the way I've structured the influential author and the kind of people I like to work with through my publication company, Identity Publications, are people whose primary motivation is more based in a sense of meaning and purpose that they have to what it is they're trying to communicate. Like they've had a set of 
really unique life experiences or they've developed a really specialized form of expertise on something important that they know could really benefit people if they knew the things that they know or if they were able to share their story about something really important, which could be a memoir or, or a series of interviews about something, or it could be, hey, I'm, I know I'm the world's leading expert on how to do your taxes if you're an American who lives in another country, which is an actual book that I helped produce called yeah, tell us US about, Taxes um, for the American this one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I love that book <laughs> as an expat. Tell us about the um, uh, Hel Helena Lind. You're, you got her on and you're helping her publish a book. Well, yeah. Helena is Helena Lind is an entrepreneur slash visionary, great woman who runs a publication called Destinosophy. She's writing a book called Destiny Loves You, which I'm helping her produce. And publish and it's it's a philosophy book about the concept of destiny more than anything and it's the kind of thing she's been working on i think for decades now and she's very much in that motivation state of i'm doing this because i believe i have something profoundly important to say about the concept of destiny and i believe a certain kind of person when they read this will have a very visceral life-changing reaction to it right and she's already fairly well known within her niche. She's financially successful, so she's not doing it because she thinks it's a way to get rich quick or that she wants the admiration of having written a book. I think she's doing it and she's really taking her time with it because she's been working on it for several years because she wants it done right. And I, that's the kind of person I like to work with that I think should take advantage of the possibilities created by self-publishing. Yeah. Yeah, what, um, how about the people that want to write in, uh, a memoir or autobiography I usually tell them not to, unless they're like famous. What are you? What's your well, take on that? People need a reason to read your book besides just the fact that you wrote it, right? We're all very biased about our own stories, and the and maybe the more vain or narcissistic among us, and I'm not excluding myself from this by any measure, so don't think I'm being too judgmental. Uh, you know, we think, wow, all these really cool things have happened to me. I want to share my life story with the world because I think it's really interesting because it happened to me. And maybe it is really interesting, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there are a lot of people who have never heard of you who would pay 10 or $20 and invest several hours of their time into reading whatever you write down that you happen to think is interesting. And But also the opposite can be true. I wrote a memoir. Well, it, was, it was sort of a combination memoir and also a travel book and philosophy book called Travel is Transformation. And it was a memoir in the sense that I share my personal stories of having been a world traveler for over a decade since I turned 18, which may be enough incentive for somebody who's interested in travel to read it. But I think more than a memoir, it was a book about the concept of personal transformation and how your sense of identity changes when you expose yourself to new circumstances and challenging lifestyle conditions. And travel was just the catalyst to get to that point, right? So it's really more about personal evolution with, within the context of travel than more specifically within the, con within the context of what my experiences traveling have taught me. So it is about me, but it's not exclusively about me. And that's what I wanted. I didn't want it to be a book you should read because Gregory Deal's a really cool guy. It has an amazing life story. It should just be, I learned some pretty interesting and I think rare things and here's how I learned them. Make of this whatever you want. What was the one rare thing that you learned? Uh, that culture is, is a very arbitrary and usually stifling and limiting thing. That whatever beliefs you were arbitrarily raised with, however beneficial they may be in some contexts, they could have been any of anything else raised under a different cultural 
context, you would have believed completely different things and you would have had a completely different sense of who you are and the purpose of your life and even what your values are. And I think the only way you arrive at a non-arbitrary idea of yourself and what your values are is that you challenge and question everything you think is true about yourself. Travel isn't the only way to do it. I think it's a particularly effective one, though. So that's interesting because you reflect upon yourself when you travel. I reflect upon the others. Have you noticed the more you travel, the more you, I don't know if you lose confidence in humanity, but you notice that every country's the same at a certain level. And uh, sure. Uh, but it's interesting. Um, yeah. So tell us about it. Is, do you notice, do you lose you a, a bit of confidence in the governments of the world or? Yeah, well, in some ways, it's almost a paradox because there is endless variety in the world. Like even I've been to over 50 countries now. And sometimes when I go to a new place, I still notice like, oh, I've never seen them do that this way before. Mm -hmm. You know, like eat, eat lunch this way or this particular okay. style. The very minute things, you know, there's endless variety in the way people live. <laughs> like even how to use kitchen utensils or something. Uh, but also there are these overarching patterns that define how society works that are strikingly universal in some ways. And that includes some of the most infuriating inefficiencies. I think when you travel a lot to other countries, you're less likely to take for granted the way people do things, the intuitive sense of how the world works that you just assume must be universally true. Even the very concept of why do we have countries and why do we have 196 of them? And why are their borders delineated in the specific way that they are? And why do they have the specific laws that they do and, and speak the specific languages that they do and use the specific currencies that they do? All these really arbitrary, unnecessarily complicated rules for how the world works. I think when you travel a lot and you've seen a lot of variation among these, you, you take it less for granted and you say, nobody really knows what the, fuck, what the heck they're doing here. Sorry, caught myself there. No matter. <laughs> And you're more willing to question the very basics of how you think life works. And that applies on the micro level of your individual life and also the macro level of the very society that you're living in. And yeah, it can make you more empathetic towards people, like to learn to care about foreign people that previously you probably would have thought you have nothing in common with because you're a different skin color and your religious beliefs are completely different and whatever. But also it can, it can sort of teach you a lot of mm -hmm. disdain for the parts of the world that don't make a lot of sense and are very dehumanizing, like the oppressive forces of authoritarian governments in certain parts of the world, or the oppressive religions or cultural beliefs, or, you know, in many parts of the world, women are still very oppressed by men, particularly Muslim parts of the world, but not specifically there either, or, or you know, homosexuals basically aren't allowed to exist in a lot of places, and things yeah, like that exist. that you consider a problem. Yeah, you consider a problem of like decades past mm -hmm. in America, perhaps, are mm -hmm. very real, very current problems that nobody really seems to care about in many parts of the world. So you learn <laughs> both sides, the, the very good and the very bad, because you see more of everything if you travel without a bias or an agenda. Have you ever been to a country that wasn't dysfunctional or had a dysfunctional government or something? No place is perfect, certainly. Uh, there are places that align much better with my nature and my values. And those are the places I've begun setting up long-term living conditions. I own Ecuador, two huh? houses now, one in Ecuador and one in Armenia. 
I happen to also be a citizen of Armenia because I, my grandmother was Armenian, so I was able to get citizenship by descent there. Ooh. And then coincidentally, after spending a lot of time there, I realized I actually really like living there. So I bought property there and I'm returning there in about two weeks to go work on my property. So that's one of the few places I found that I could feel comfortable setting up a long-term life because it just has the right combination of cultural factors, climate factors, like, you know, it's warm most of the year. That's nice. Yeah. Uh, and low cost of living, which again is a very another very nice perk that I can live on very little money. And I just feel welcome and involved in the community there, which doesn't say mean that it doesn't have its problems. You know, and I hardly even know them there, but I know that, you know, politically there have been revolutions and protests. I know that it has a lot of issues with Turkey and Azerbaijan, its immediate neighbors yeah. that don't seem to like Armenians very much. So it really just depends what your priorities are. If you care about those things a lot, then a place like Armenia probably wouldn't be the right place for you to settle down. Yeah. And, and Ecuador, I like for different reasons, but also reasons that are very true to me as a person. And there's no reason I ever have to live in one place full time. I have the freedom to go where I want because my income is all online and a lot of that is derived from people buying my books. So that's a pretty nice perk. Yeah, that is wrong. That is awesome. That's living the dream, right? So okay, let's get back to your book. Someone, um, uh, you had the influential author there. And so uh, do you have like uh, a five-step plan or the so many points or what's, what, what's the first step? Well, I actually divide the book into seven distinct parts. One second, let me get some water. Okay, I will take the simultaneous sip with you. And this seven step, and it's not seven steps really, but it's seven categories of different types of action you have to take that are loosely sequential. And this was derived after analyzing how I had written my previous books and the steps that all the other authors that I had gone through worked with had to go through too, whether they did some of those steps without me and I joined in later or I was there from the very beginning. And the seven sections of the book are one, philosophy, two, strategy, three, <coughs> creation, which many people think of as the first step, the actual process of writing the first draft of the book, but I'm saying there are two others that come before that. Four, refinement, which includes things like editing, but not just that. Five, presentation, six, promotion, and then seven, finally, reward, which is everything that happens after you've published your book and how it changes your life and what to do past that point. And I, I think without some sense of order and structure, it's very easy to get overwhelmed by everything that goes into the process of creating and publishing and promoting a book, because it is a lot of things that take a lot of different specialized skill sets, and it's very unlikely that you're going to be good at all of them, right? You could be a great writer, but perhaps a horrible editor of your own work or a horrible graphic designer or a horrible marketer who doesn't understand what, you know, the title that you want to use for your book might not be the best title for the readers who are going to buy your book based off of what they see in its description and its title and, and on and on and on and on. All these little decisions that have to be made that you aren't necessarily the most well-equipped to make. And you can mitigate a lot of those through things like market testing, like seeing how people respond to one title or one cover design over another. And more importantly, you can hire people to do the parts that you're not best suited to do. Or you can hire someone like me who can take over almost the entire process for you if that's what you yeah. want to do. It just depends how heavily involved you want to be in all aspects of the book creation process. I like that. So, um, yeah, you, you kind of skipped all the way to the promotion. But um, uh, so... Do you have time 
to go over each step a little bit. I like the philosophy part, for example. Well, that's the most important part, and unfortunately, the most frequently overlooked part. The mm -hmm. philosophy is essentially your why. It's, and it's not just why are you writing a book, which we already talked about a little bit. Uh, it's also why do books exist? Why have they existed for hundreds of years since the invention of the printing press? Why are they as popular and revered as they are? What does a book represent, right? An encapsulated paradigm, a, a transference of important knowledge. And that's the fundamental like that. premise that I begin with when I'm talking about, you know, why should you write a nonfiction book? Because this is what a book is. And it's one of the most important things you could ever do if you do it right, because good books have shaped the course of civilization. Yeah. And I give examples yeah. of things like Isaac Newton's Principia Mathematica mm -hmm. and Thomas Paine's Common Sense that showed, you know, if, if these people had not published these books, the world would look yeah. very different today. And you could come up with way more examples than just those. I'm just trying to, to show, you know, you don't have to write a book that is fundamentally going to change the world, but it could change someone's life by giving them very important, very specific information that they couldn't get anywhere else, or that's delivered in a way that is much more effective than they could have gotten from any other source. Yeah, it's pretty profound, actually, those two examples. I'm, I'm going to go look at some more examples. But uh, yeah, Thomas Paine and Isaac Newton, man, they, he didn't even want to publish his book. But um, okay, what about the next step? Strategy is, you know, once you know why you're trying to write a book, you can begin to narrow down, well, what, what books that I could write would satisfy that criteria, you know, that will, that will serve the function of what I'm trying to accomplish by writing a book, giving me a personal sense of meaning and, and fundamentally, you know, altering the way people think about a certain subject. And this could be derived from if, if you've been working in a certain field for a long time, so you've developed a certain amount of professional expertise there, then you already know, hey, people keep hiring me to teach them how to do this thing or to do this thing for them. Maybe I should encapsulate my knowledge in a book, considering I already know what kind of people need this information and the best way to present it to them, right? And it includes like how you're going to organize your knowledge. Because if you, if you have tens of thousands of words to say on a subject, the, the order in which you present those words, right? Or the amount of redundancy that you use or the level of simplicity that you're willing to use or complexity, right? How refined are you going to get in that knowledge? Are you going to get down to the really, really tiny little details? Or are you going to stay in a more broad overview, you know, the, the introduction to this subject, right? All of those are important and you need to probably figure those out before you actually even begin writing the first draft or you're not even going to know what you're supposed to be writing. Or you could change your mind halfway through and suddenly half of what you've written doesn't really work with the new vision for what you want the book to be. So yeah. all of that, I think, is questions you need to ask before you even begin writing the first draft or coming up with a, a thorough outline of the book. And you do this with your authors. You, you go through these steps and ask them the important questions first. I do if they come to me at that stage. Some of them already have a pretty clear idea on what they want to write because yeah. it's something <clears throat> they have a lot of experience with or they've already written a rough draft or something like that, which may or may not be usable depending on how well they wrote it. Okay, what's... What's after strategy? Creation, which is you know what we think of as writing. Uh, things like creating the right writing environment, figuring out how to consistently turn thoughts into words, which is really what writing is, right? And you can have a thinking problem or you can have a, a writing problem. And both of those will stop you from writing your book. Thinking being you don't know what it is you're trying to say, which hopefully you've solved by doing the prior steps of philosophizing and strategizing. And then the writing problem, which just means you're not 
creating the right external environment for you to quickly easily be able to sit there and type or write out with pen and paper if that's what you prefer the thoughts that are now going on pretty clearly in your head and many many things can affect that like the music you're listening to or the country you're in or the food you've been eating or the drugs you've been taking so that's i mean that's been yeah. talked about to death of course and you know that it's it's hard work it doesn't just take a long time, which it does. Even if you're a very fast typist, it will still take you a long time to write tens of thousands of words. It's more that it incurs a very high cognitive stress load for most people mm -hmm. to, to do that much transmutation of thought into a written word over and over and over and over again for days and weeks and months on end. And most people, you know, it's like running a marathon. You wouldn't go from being a sedentary person to running 20 miles in one day, right? Because you'd kill yourself your body isn't isn't used to that right you'd work your way up to that it's the same thing here i well before i was a, an author you know i was a copywriter i was a salesman i was an educator i was a lot of things that involved direct concentrated high volume targeted communication in one form or another so that was like my training for becoming an author that i i had developed a lot of endurance for communicating over and over and over and over and over again very complex things it and sounds like whatever you don't that get right look do you Oh, I do. Sure. I mean, I get less of it if I'm pretty clear on what I'm trying to write, which is the part now that I think I'm, I'm pretty good at because I'm very clear on, on what I'm trying to communicate most of the time. But I'm still subject to all kinds of physical weaknesses, like just being too tired to write, had too much coffee, had too little coffee. The neighbor is making too much noise and it's distracting me. You know, any, anything can interrupt the process. You can't really micromanage it like that, even if you're a great writer. Interruptions are annoying. Uh, how do you deal with those? Sometimes interruptions help. Some people prefer to write in a cafe where there's lots of noise and distractions going on. Uh, sometimes mm. I prefer mm. to write late at night when I'm really tired because sometimes during the day my brain is too active. It's hard to force it to slow down and, and sit and focus on one stream of thought. And if I I'm could really imagine that. Late at night, yeah. yeah, sure. Or some people prefer, you know, calm, peaceful, classical music that helps them focus. Sometimes I do too. Sometimes I prefer blasting really chaotic music for the same reason, because that distractive element actually, in a weird paradoxical way, helps me focus when I was having too many thoughts running through my head before. It like forces attention away from those onto just one. And it changes hour to hour sometimes. So no one can tell you exactly what conditions will be most conducive to you writing well you just have to experiment because it is unique to your body and your psychology yeah so oh man we can go on a lot of tangents here couldn't we but what is the next step okay creation i don't i don't really want to gloss over that but we do want to go over the next steps you know yeah that, that's been talked about a lot so and the next part four is refinement which includes things like editing including uh, traditional conceptions of developmental editing you know, which, which applies to the overall structure of the book. Like, are you talking enough about this topic? Is this in the right order? You need to introduce this before you introduce that or it won't make sense. Uh, line editing, like, is that the best way to phrase this thing you're trying to say? Are you using this word too often in a small space? Uh, you know, uh, and then to the minute proofreading side of things, like you're not using semicolons correctly or you need an M dash here, not an N dash. You know, and these you things know what, are sequential. Uh, it doesn't make sense to do proofreading if you haven't done your overall developmental editing first. Yeah, you know what Kurt Vonnegut said about semicolons, right? Hmm. You, you don't know that one? Uh, you know what? 
I won't say it on air because it's not politically correct. Just put uh, in Google Kurt Vonnegut. He called them all sorts of bad names. <laughs> and it's... Uh, I like them. I think they're, they're often over, uh, overused or incorrectly used. But I do think they have their place. Well, well I think now. George Orwell yeah. said, if you can use a comma, then use a comma. Never, you know, don't bother with that fancy stuff. So anyway. I, yeah, I think if you aren't 100% sure on how to use a semicolon, you probably shouldn't. But that doesn't mean that you can't learn how to use a semicolon. But yeah, it'd yeah. be better to avoid it than to misuse it. <coughs> but I'll let refinement you doesn't just include those things. It also includes incorporating the feedback of other people, like beta readers, right? Mm -hmm. which, which is really just market testing for your writing. Because however good you think your writing is and however much sense it makes to you or even to a specific editor you may hire, which you don't even necessarily need to do, though that can be a good idea to work with someone you trust to edit your work, uh, you need to know how the market will respond to what you have written. After they've taken the trouble to buy your book and now invest their time into reading it, you need to preemptively fix any problems that may arise as regular people, not professional editors, or, or people you're paying to help you, look at your work and say, I don't understand what you're talking about here, or this part is really boring and it made me want to stop reading, or you're being really repetitive here, or on and on and on, anything that can possibly be interpreted as mm -hmm. suboptimal about your writing. And there was no way that you or even a single other person that you hired to edit could possibly spot all those things. You need to bring mm -hmm. in a variety of different minds, people who are really familiar with your subject, people who are newcomers to your subject, people who are really personally familiar with you, but so they understand the way that you usually like to write and communicate, as well as people who have never heard of you, so that they're coming in completely blind and have no personal bias about you. And mm -hmm. getting that huge variety of feedback, much of which might be totally invalid, like that it could just be people projecting their own arbitrary biases and opinions onto your work. And that's the kind of thing you need to learn to recognize. Like well, this person's telling me that, that my writing sucks. Well, is that true? Or is, or is he just complaining? Yeah. Or is he just the wrong person to be reading this kind of book? And frankly, I don't know why he agreed to, to beta read my work because he's clearly <clears throat> the wrong kind of person to be reading a book. Yeah, like usually this. if it's a beta reader, they shouldn't, you know, they should be a little more constructive than that, you know. Most people aren't very good at, being constructively critical on anything. Mm. So, so that would you as, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, you as the author need to learn to differentiate those things, like what kind of feedback is actually useful and worth incorporating and what to overlook. But all of it is educational, even the really bad feedback at least teaches you that it is possible for people to have this kind of reaction to your work. Mm. Yeah, well, that's why um, beta readers are very important. So I think you got that one. And uh, so, okay, what's after the refinement then? Part five is presentation, which includes obviously cover design, title and subtitle, uh, the book description, the kind of thing people see on its Amazon listing or on the back of the book when they pick it up on a bookshelf. <coughs> and, and everything that represents the book but is not the actual content of the book itself, right? And every way that it will show up to people before they actually buy it or begin reading it. And those things matter because they're the doorway to the content itself, right? They're the window through which we, we come to actually read the words within the book. So if you've got really crappy presentation, it doesn't matter if you've written a really amazing book because it will be very difficult to convince people to read it. And again, a lot of that is just market testing, like learning how people respond to different cover designs and different title choices 
because I don't expect most people who write books to be amazing graphic designers or, or marketers who understand you know, how the color red will subconsciously influence buyers and, and clicks and conversions and all that. But you can test yeah. all those things and hire people to help you with all that. So how do you, do you test? Do you, do you have a favorite method like Facebook ads or whatever? Facebook groups are, are great in general. Instagram, anywhere you can find a concentrated market of people, like depending on who your ideal reader is. Like if your book is for, you know, uh, single women between ages 20 and 40 who love dogs, then you can find groups of people that have, that have a lot of those types of people, right? And there could be many different groups that, that are equally valid to test your designs and your in your presentation choices and and you look for the trends based off of those tests that you do and then you start to make your decisions based off of those trends where there's consistency overwhelming consistency cool cool so you go to facebook groups but you don't do any facebook ads or what i currently don't no i've heavily considered starting to do that that would be part of part six promotion <laughs> which is the act of getting new viewers to your book, right, to see the promotional elements that you've created. I primarily now do that through just things like, like this Facebook Live video is an example of promotion because somebody watching it might decide to read the influential author or another one of my yeah. books or hire me to help them publish their book. Uh, and, and I do other things too, like guest blog appearances, podcast appearances. I run Amazon advertisements on other books that are similar to mine and keyword searches. And that by itself can get you a whole lot of visibility, assuming that a lot of that actually converts to buyers yeah. because they're impressed with the cover and the title and they decide this is a book that I'd like to read. If that isn't true, then it doesn't really matter how much visibility you get. Yeah, yeah of course. So uh, where were we? Refinement and then what? Uh, we had presentation and now we're talking about part six promotion. Right, which is so which most, is just marketing, as we typically think of it. And we could, you know, there are people way smarter than me, way more comprehensive books on online marketing. But I at least, you know, well explain the concept of, of how to promote a book you publish yourself, even if you don't have a large pre-existing brand as an author or a pre-existing audience. You can still get people to look at your book and decide, yes, I would pay twenty dollars for this and invest my time into reading it. Yeah, yeah. So, do you have a I don't know, a marketing or favorite marketing method, or is it just all encompassing? I would say that the number one most reliable marketing tactic I have used on all my books and, and books I've helped other authors with is Amazon ads. Mm -hmm. Ads directly on Amazon that are pay-per-click. <clears throat> I like that too. That's my favorite. I think it's a really great way to learn paid advertising too. So, yeah. uh, okay, then what's after the marketing? Part seven is reward. It's everything ah. that happens after you've published your book, how it positively affects your life, whether that's you know the, the internal reward of a sense of meaning and fulfillment because you've accomplished this amazing mm -hmm. task of sharing this important message with the world. It could be the social reception. Right? People treat you differently when you're a successful author about a subject they care about, right? Whether or not that's a valid response to have or not, that's up to you to decide. You know, for me, <coughs> anyone can write a book, I'm going to put in the work. But yeah. to people who have never written a book, it's a really prestigious thing to have written, especially like a, a big book or like 400 pages or more. And then, of course, there's the financial reward. If your book is successful, if it's selling significant copies per day, you can actually make a lot of passive income from that. I certainly make enough money to live on it and travel around the world on it. And I think I could one day be very rich because of it or even yeah. because of other services that books turn into. Like if someone hires me to help 
publish their book after reading my book about publishing, which some people have already done just from reading my book, that can be a much larger financial reward than just the royalties I get from the book itself. Yeah, yeah, lovely, huh? Helping people, providing value, kind of like the core values of entrepreneurism, huh? All right. Exactly. So and that's, that's what every author needs to think of themselves as a book entrepreneur, not just an author, but you are selling a message, you're selling a product, and you're selling yourself. Are you calling it book entrepreneur or infopreneur? What did you call it? Well, I, I just call it a book entrepreneur, but that, yeah, that's, cool. the, that's what you are if you're a self-published author. You're not just an author. You're a businessman, yeah. and the business is you and your message. Mm. Got to have that tea. So can we see your book again? Yeah. Again, the title is The Influential Author, How and Why to Write, Publish, and Sell Nonfiction Books That Matter. I, if you like anything you've heard me say and the way that I approach this very complex subject, I suggest checking it out on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. It's pretty long. It's about 130,000 words, over 400 pages. So, you know, and that's one of its unique selling factors, that it is a much more in-depth, lengthy, detailed explanation of this process than you will find in any other self-publishing guide. And I feel pretty confident about claiming that. So if that's what you're into, I suggest you check out the book. And if you want to contact me, you can do that too. Just go to identitypublications.com. Identitypublications.com. But I want to reiterate what you just said because I've read a lot of books and I've read your book too. And I was just, I was just surfing around in Amazon and one of the the bigger gurus, right, has a, uh, you know, the whole the whole shebang, the publishing uh, schools and stuff like that. And uh, he, he has several books and getting one-star reviews on his second or third book because it's just a rehash of the first book. And mm -hmm. I would say if these books were printed out, they'd be about that big or something. And your book is real book. So I just wanted to reiterate yeah. tell everybody about that. Gregory's book is really good. Uh, I have it read it and uh so that was all seven steps wasn't it yeah i mean it's a lot longer when it's written out in the book but that's that's the yeah. gist of it well you know i think we better do this again someday when we get facebook live figured out um i'm gonna go back and check out this video and uh so what are you gonna do today you're in you're in the pi it's what two three p.m uh, yeah, it's the afternoon here in the Philippines, in Davao City, in the south of Mindanao Island. I'm actually going to go see Alita <coughs> Battle Angel at the local what? movie theater very shortly. I'm going to go it? see the movie Alita Battle Angel. Oh. It's like an anime adaptation. No beach? You're not going Asians to the beach? Really like their no, no, I'll do that another day. I'm on an island. I can go anytime. All right, my friend. Well... Uh, I got to go get breakfast. So my family's waking up downstairs, downstairs. Uh, what was it again? Identity Publications? Identitypublications.com is my company. You can also email me, contact at identitypublications.com. Or just add me on Facebook since we're on Facebook. That works too. That's right. I highly recommend it. Any beginning authors or intermediate advanced authors out there, get a hold of Gregory and... Uh, I look forward to seeing you at the top, my friend. We'll keep in touch as we have since I began this journey two years ago. Okay. So. I'll catch you later. Bye. See you. Bye.
Okay, my friends, if you like that podcast, then remember to go to zbooks.co and go get all the materials to start your authoring career. We have a seven-day challenge every week, so there's no excuse to not finish your book. And remember, please go to iTunes and upload this podcast and Google Play. Okay, I look forward to seeing you at the top.